Hello everybody, welcome back to the show. Today my guest is John Donovan. John is the son of Peter Donovan who for a long time worked at Buckfast Abbey with Brother Adam. He worked there from 1939 right up until 2004. In the photo that you can see attached to this podcast, he's actually, I think he's 12 years old at the time and he's got his little suit on, he's got a tie, I think it's his school uniform. It's actually a a really cool photo. Anyway, John is his son, and John's going to be telling us all about his childhood working with Brother Adam, and also his father, and he's got some great stories. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Also, if you're liking this podcast, you can go and get it on Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, or in a bunch of other places. And if you'd like to hear someone, you can get in touch with me at brent at nixonbees.com.au. Okay, let's get on with the episode. How are you today, John? I'm fine, thank you, Brent. Yes, very well. So, tell us what it's like uh, living over there in Buckfast. Uh, Do you still get to go to the Abbey from time to time? Oh, yes, yes. It's... um... It's our parish church, actually, and having been brought up a Catholic, the same as Dad, um, I've, we've always gone there to church services, and I did sing in a choir for a while, a few years ago, and um, it's got a very good um, uh, music set up there now, um, with several choirs and several organists and all that kind of thing, and it's, it's sort of become a bit of a, cent- a cultural centre for church music in the area the last few years which is rather nice oh, that is really nice and you were we were talking before and you were saying that you can still hear the bells from where you are yes yes when the wind's in the right direction you can tell what time of day it is when the angelus goes and the various um offices that the monks attend where they ring a bell beforehand to call them to prayer and um uh yeah you take on foot from my front door it takes about 20 minutes to get there over the hill so it's not far away that's fantastic and you've been living there your whole life haven't you uh yes since the age of five yeah Um, my father well to to put you completely in the picture uh my father was born in gravesend in kent on the banks of the river thames in 1927 and he was evacuated he went he went to a convent school catholic convent school in the town and when war broke out the nuns had all the children evacuated and um, they were all brought to Buckfastleigh in Devon because um, there was a sister convent to theirs at Buckfast associated with the monastery. So my dad and his um, one of his brothers and his sister were all sent here um, in 1939 and um, uh, he set, he settled out at Buckfast um, in, a, in a big house right opposite where Brother Adam's apron was. And this was how they met. Um, on the very first afternoon he arrived, I think they came on a Sunday, if I remember rightly. They travelled down on the train on a Sunday. 
and um, they were all lined up outside the Catholic school, um, convent school at Buckfast, and various ladies of the WVS who organised the evacuation, um, the kids were all picked out and sent off to different families. Well, um, my grandmother had said to Dad, now, you're the eldest, look after your brother and sister and all stay together. Well, unfortunately, he didn't have any choice. They got split up because um, one of the ladies who was going to accommodate kids only wanted girls. So um, she took my aunt and her school friend and left dad and his brother behind. And dad couldn't do anything about it. Anyway, um, they ended up, they were billeted in this big house with um, a family uh, called Hodgson who was an ex-naval commander and his wife and two daughters. And it was a very sort of posh middle-class house with servants and things. And um, my dad and my uncle were taken there and they were given one of the maid's bedrooms right up in the attic. And it had a little dormer window that looked out towards the abbey. And my dad said, when they were taken up to the room and they were told to sort of unpack before they went to have tea, he stood looking out of the window and it was a lovely sunny autumn afternoon and he could see this garden inside a wall behind a gate and there were all these little boxes in it all dotted all over the lawn and he thought I wonder what that is and then he saw this man as he put it in a dress and a hat walking around with this thing that had smoke coming out of it and he thought well, that's a bit strange and he stood there watching for ages and ages anyway got told off because he was late going down for his tea and then um, the next day after school when he went back to the house they were told to go out and play so dad being inquisitive um, went down the lane a bit further found this gate and climbed over it and went to look in this garden that he'd seen and sure enough this gentleman in the dress and the hat was there again and he stood at the gate watching him and this was brother Adam and my dad would have been about 10 then I think and um, brother Adam came over and spoke to him and said to him who are you young man and he introduced himself and he said uh, and my dad said to him what are you doing what's in the boxes and he said oh it's bees they're beehives and he invited dad in and literally, that is how my father took up beekeeping. That's really interesting. And I, I suppose it's around this time that we, we see that really famous photo of your father and brother Adam, where your father is helping him and he's, he's dressed up, he's got a tie on. Do you know the one I mean? That's right. And he's, and he's in short trousers, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's when that photo, yeah, he and he's sort of, he's, so you're saying he's about 10 years old in that photo. Uh, yeah, well, that would have been that was slightly later. I think that was the following year that was taken. That would have been 1940, and he'd already started working for Brother Adam part time then. <laughs> At that stage, because the school was so overcrowded, and they used to work shifts with the kids. One day the local kids were at school, and then the next day the evacuees were at school. And the headmistress of the school was a very nice, benign old Benedictine nun called Sister Lawrence. And she had a very soft spot for my dad and um, she knew brother Adam very well and when she found out that dad had got an interest in the bees she used to sign him in the register and then let him go off beekeeping rather than be at school and <laughs> oh um, that's fantastic and it went from there and he did that on and off part-time 
uh, until just before he was 12. And then how he came to work there permanently, he, he sat um, what they used to call the 11 plus exam in those days. And um, he passed it and he actually won a scholarship. He got such a high grade, he won a scholarship to go to the local grammar school. And Sister Lawrence wrote home or wrote out a list of what he had to have to be able to go to the grammar school. And he needed a rugby kit and a football kit, uh, cricket whites, all kinds of things, a blazer, a straw boater, hat. There was a whole list of gear he'd got to have and books. Anyway, he was given this list and he came back to his lodgings and he wrote a letter home to my grandparents um, to explain what had happened and that he needed this stuff so he could go to grammar school. Well, usually it was my granny that wrote the letters in the household, but on this occasion he got a letter back from Grandad, which was very unusual. And I'm afraid Grandad was a typical old Cockney working class geezer of the time. A bit sort of Alf Garnet type, if you're familiar with that character off of television. And um, he wrote this letter back very briefly to my father and said, well done, son. Glad you passed your exam. No, you won't be going to grammar school because we can't afford to buy that lot. Get yourself a job. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And um, that was all that was in the letter. So my dad took it in and showed it to Sister Lawrence and she didn't quite know what to do. And I think she wrote to my grandparents separately and got a similar letter back. <laughs> so um, that was the end of the trip to grammar school. Um, and she explained it to Brother Adam and Brother Adam said, well, he can come and work for me. And that was when dad then went full time into beekeeping from the age of 12. Wow. So. Um, Yes. What an interesting yeah. story. And he, he worked there during his teen years and then and then there was a bit of a gap and he came back in the in the seventies. Is that right? Yeah. Well, he worked there until nineteen forty five and then um by then of course the war had more or less come to an end. I think there was only the uh the war in Europe had come to an end, but the Japanese bit was still at the tail end. They they'd had V E Day but they hadn't had V J Day that makes sense and um, my father got sent call-up papers and he took them into work with him and he showed them to brother Adam and of course brother Adam was always a bit of a force to be reckoned with um, both in the monastery and outside and he didn't like being told what to do and he read these papers and he went oh well we can't have this you know I'll, I'll write off and get you a reserved occupation because I need you. We've got queen breeding to do and all this kind of thing. Anyway, he wrote off to um, the MOD and tried to claim uh, like it, agricultural labourers and things were reserved occupation so they didn't have to be called up. And of course, by this time, as I say, the war in Europe had ended. Um, so he wasn't actually going into the army as such. It was the first wave of, um, oh, it's gone out of my head now what they were called um national service sorry it was the first wave of national servicemen which um was a thing they did after world war ii in england that all boys of a certain age had to go and do national service for a few for a year or so um and at the beginning it was it was five years i think anyway um 
he wrote off to the Adam wrote off to the MOD and he got a very peremptory letter back saying no beekeeping is not a reserved occupation and Mr Donovan will have to go into the army so that was the end of that and um, my dad joined up as he was living down here rather than go home and join the East Kent he joined the um, Devonshire Regiment and he left from down here and he went to um, Malaya, Hong Kong and Singapore and um, well, he, went, he briefly went home to see my grandparents and met up with my mother interestingly because um, my mother was um, a neighbour, uh, they all lived in the same street on this big estate my mother's family lived at number three and dad's lived at number 17 so they'd known one another pre-war as children but mother never got evacuated to Devon you see because she wasn't Catholic she went to a different school so they lost touch while he was down here anyway when he went back home for this few weeks he met up with my mother and sort of reacquainted himself and both of them having grown up by then and um, they went out on a date and they did most of their courtship uh, via letter between Gravesend and Malaya. Um, uh, so all the time he was out there, he was writing to and fro to my mum, you see. Um, anyway, he, he, then, he went from Gravesend then to Malaya to begin with in the jungle. And they were actually rounding up stray Japanese because the, um, the end of the Japanese war had come by then and he was rounding up stray Japanese soldiers who didn't know the war was over and then after so many months of doing that he was then transferred to Hong Kong and he was made a military policeman and he used to tell some very interesting stories about what he got up to there raiding sort of bordellos looking for soldiers and god knows what um, and he also uh, by the way one bit I did miss out while he was in Malaya in the jungle he actually kept bees he caught a swarm of wild bees and he made a beehive out of a tea chest. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he got, he got a honey crop from them as well, which was quite amazing. That is um, very I've good. Got photo, I've got photos of that with this tea chest suspended from a tree and bees flying out of it. Really? Um, mm, I'd love to see that. Mm. And um, so then after Malaya, he went to Hong Kong, was a military policeman. And then the last part of his time out there um he became a prison guard and this was at um singapore at changi jail which is where the japanese had imprisoned all the english and australians and treated them rather badly and whatever so when the tables turned and um singapore fell and, and was taken back um they put the japanese in there and gave them a taste of their own medicine to use an old-fashioned phrase and my dad was a prison guard guarding Japanese officers waiting to be tried for war crimes and um, yes he used to tell some very interesting stories about that about the different ones that he met who sort of run prison camps you know where the women and children had been held hostage and all that kind of thing um, yes yeah, so he had he had quite a quite an interesting military career and then he was demobbed in, I think it was 1948. I think it was 48, not 47. Anyway, he came back and came back to Gravesend and got engaged to my mother. And um, then they got married in 1950. And um, 
I think he would have liked to have moved to Devon then if he could have done, because uh, he was told by Brother Adam before he left, there will always be a job for you here. You can come back whenever you want. Um, and he would have loved to have come back as early as 1950. But my mother was living with her mother, my maternal granny, and granny wasn't terribly well. She was getting on in years and she was a bit frail and mum didn't want to leave her. So it was decided that um, the Buckfast move would be postponed. Um, anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so they got married in 1950 and then had me in 67. And then eventually we moved back here in 1972 when I was five. Right. And um, it was it was quite fascinating, really, because when dad turned up at Buckfast, he was given the same bunch of keys to the B department that he'd had pre-war or during the war, I should say. And when he let himself in, he walked around and he knew exactly where everything was. It was all in the same places. Nothing had been moved. It was just like yesterday. And he said it was like that that 20 years or, or 18 years, whatever it was in between, um, had never happened and he'd never been away, you know. Wow. Um, now, there's yeah. an interesting story, John. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, the uh, mating station on Dartmoor was, uh, I think it was once mistaken as a target range for the military. Oh, There was a story. Yes. I read yeah. this somewhere. Are you familiar with this story? Oh, yes. Yes, I am. And yeah. it wasn't actually the mating station. Slight correction there. Okay. It, it was when they'd moved. Um, they used to move the bees in the later part of the summer up to Dartmoor for the heather honey crop because Dartmoor was, was full of beautiful heather shrubs in those days. There was none of this swaling nonsense that the farmers do in the name of getting rid of bracken um, going on, um, which all it does really, it destroys it destroys the heather, which doesn't come back, and the bracken grows even more. But anyway, um, and they'd moved, they used to move each of the out apries, which were dotted around in the countryside, up to the moors um, for about, I think it was for about six weeks uh, or two months at most to get a heather crop. And they'd moved one of the out apries. I can't for the life of me at the moment remember which one, but it would be in one of the notebooks. And they'd moved it to this particular site that was up on the moor. And it was on the side of a valley. And um, they'd been there a couple of days and they'd gone up to check on the beehives to see how things were going. And it was um, it had been quite a chilly night the night before. And there was a fog hanging through the valley. Well, there was a major who's I think his name was Major Gompert, if I remember rightly, or Brigadier Gompert. And um, he'd got a load of uh, soldiers up there for shooting practice, target practice. And the targets were all set up on the other side of the valley. Well, the soldiers were marched into the bottom of the valley, got disorientated with the fog, spotted these white dots in the distance. Ah, that's the targets. So they all started shooting at the beehives. Well, my father threw himself on the floor and got behind got behind the beehives a cluster of beehives and was shouting was shouting at brother adam to get down get down and adam did no more than turn around flip the front of his bee veil up over his head like one of those edwardian ladies motor hats 
and went marching headfirst straight towards where the soldiers were, calling out and waving his hands. And um, they were still shooting. And oh, there was, my goodness. There was splinters, <laughs> splinters coming off of beehives, my dad said, and you could hear the bullets whistling. And dad thought, God, I'm not going out there. I'm staying here. And he laid down on his front as he'd been taught in his army training because um, uh, he did at that point. He, he hadn't actually been in the army, but he, he um, in his spare time, he belonged to um, like the local dad's army, the defence volunteers. And they were taught about, you know, if you were in a scenario where you were being shot at, how to behave, get as low as possible. Anyway, so he watched Adam go down the bank, waving his hands and calling out. And then this brigadier stood up and sort of ceasefire was called. Oh, and Adam tore him a strip off. <laughs> and by this time, the sun had funny. come up and the, fog was, and the fog was lifting. And then they realised what a terrible mistake they'd made. Anyway, um, the brigadier apologised formally to Brother Adam. And Brother Adam wasn't happy because the beehives were all peppered with holes and all ruined and stuff. Anyway, um, he got compensation for it. He yeah. got quite considerable compensation for it from this brigadier. Yep. <laughs> and and it turned out the brigadier was actually a beekeeper, a hobbyist beekeeper in his spare time, so that helped. Yeah. And they actually became quite good they became quite good friends, he and Adam. Oh wow. And um yeah, yeah. So it wasn't actually the mating station that got hit. It was it was this um oh I can't remember the name of the place. It was out near the pub that's on the middle of the moor. Um there's a very ancient pub out there that supposedly the fire has never been out for 300 years in the grate in the bar. Um, and it was um, down towards, now what was the name of the place? Oh, God, it's, it's an area known as Golden Dagger. It's a valley that runs through where there's some old mine workings. And um, it was on the side there. Yes, yeah. But um, but yes, I'd, I'd, you mentioned about the mating station. I know that very well. I've spent quite a bit of time up there. Yeah, and, well, I was um, going to ask you about that. So tell us about what it was like working up there. Oh, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It had um, almost a sort of, oh, well, not surprising with Brother Adam's origins. It was almost sort of a Germanic or Tyrolean feel to it because it's on a hillside again and there's lots of sort of natural rock and boulder sticking out of the grass and and the path sort of snakes up the side of the hill between these boulders and things and the beehives were set sort of layered and staggered as you went up the hillside but also there's big fir trees and pine trees and you could hear sort of woodpeckers and things like that and it, it almost gave you a feel that you were in austria or Switzerland or something like that and there was a river that runs through the bottom of the valley just below um, there were two little bridges that you crossed over it's a tributary of the River Dart um, I oh I want to say it's the Swinkham but I can't swear to that I think that's the name anyway it's it's the very startings of what becomes the River Dart further down which ironically runs right past the Abbey um, and uh, yeah, the river ran outside and there was a stone wall all around it with a little iron gate. And you went across the two bridges and through the iron gate and then up the hillside. And he had one of it, Brother Adam had one of his famous, um, which again would sort of German design, uh, wooden storage sheds in this apri as well. And it's got a very wide 
roof, overhanging roof. So it, it, it does look like something from the Tyrol. And that's what they used to store all the equipment in. And they could have lunch in if it was inclement weather and all that kind of thing. And um, no, it was very, very pretty up there. Beautiful. And I can remember going up there and all you could hear was bees. Just the air full of bees when it was mating season, you know. Um, no, it was a beautiful spot, that. Beautiful spot. And it was, it was rather sad that at the end of my father's life, just after he retired, um, we went up there to pay one final visit. Um, when he, well, long story short, we'd heard things were going wrong with the way things were at Buckfast in the bee department. And um, he went up there to have one final look. And um, yes, uh, sad to say, my poor old dad was in tears. It was it was a shame because it was all it, it had gone from being this beautiful pristine apiary to utter devastation. We couldn't believe what we saw, but um, we managed to rescue a few because my father still had some bees in the garden then at that time. This was before he got really poorly, and we had beehives in the garden at home. And we hunted around and we managed to find a couple of uh, nuclei boxes that were reasonably good and we brought them back and um, between the two of them my my father and my partner who is also a very adept cabinet maker they restored them and repaired them and we had them going in the garden um, as a little memento but um, oh, that's nice yes yeah. no, it, it was it was absolutely beautiful in its heyday hmm. these um, these are little four-way mating nukes you're talking about that's right, yes, yes, with the four little round entrances and a little doorstep that juts out. And they were all on um, creosote posts, so they were up out of the ground. They, they almost, in some ways, they almost looked like a bird box, but not quite. <laughs> um, but yes, so it, it was very beautiful in its heyday, yeah. Yeah, I've heard there's some renewed interest to, to re-establish that mating station. There's a few people I've spoken yeah. to that are interested in doing that at the moment. Yeah, it's been mentioned to me and they, they've asked me about it and I've said, yes, if you can do it, by all means, you know. Because um, I, th I think the bases of the that the original hive stands fitted on, the concrete bases that Adam had built, are all still there set in the ground. Um, so you'd know exactly where they were located in their groups. Yeah, that's right. And I think the shed, I think the little shed summer house thing is still there as well. I don't know what state that's in, but um, no, I think it could. If if somebody had the mind and put the effort in, they could turn it round. Can you um, can you tell us a little bit about what you remember of the buckfast bee that was being produced at the time? The buckfast bee. Well, now, um, well during my time as I was growing up. Um, this is when Brother Adam did a lot of his travelling and did a lot of his trips abroad because once he got my father back here, um, no offence to anybody else who'd worked with him previously to that because he had gone away on research trips prior to Dad coming back, but he seemed to do more of them once my dad was reinstated here because he knew he could trust my dad implicitly and that things would be done how he wanted them, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So he knew things were in safe hands. Anyway, he would take himself off. He had a couple of um, beekeeping friends he would go with. Um, one was the German gentleman, 
oh gosh, I can't remember his Christian name, but Hef Ehrenbach mm-hmm. was one of them. Yes. And then there was there was an Irish gentleman, um, a Dr. Cor, who came from Belfast. And they were the two who used to go with him most often. Anyway, he would he would leave my father back here to so he knew everything was going to go all right while he was away. And um, and also to receive any material that was sent back. And um, he would go off and do these sort of hunts for rare breeds of queen and stuff and barter with various foreign beekeepers for things. And um, and then they would use those as breeding material um, and, and cherry pick what went into the Buckfast strain. But the bees I remember them having, I mean, if I think to the Buckfast home apiary, uh, the little garden out at the Abbey, I remember being round there in the summer months and my father would take the top off of one of the beehives and it would absolutely boil over with bees. They were so full and they would all sort of come out and cascade down the sides and hang off one another and then gradually they would all go back in. And But they were beautifully gentle and quiet and um, you could you could sort of stand right next to him, you know. He, I mean, I was never a beekeeper, unfortunately. I used to show an interest, but I was never, I was never cut from the same pattern as my dad, I'm afraid. Um, but even as a child, you could stand there quite safely with no fear of getting stung. Uh, they were that quiet and gentle. And um, yeah, no, they were beautiful and a beautiful colour. They were big and they were most beautiful sort of several shades of amber through to a darker orange and then with a brown stripe. And my dad always used to make a joke about them having like a rugby top, the rugby jumper. All right, yeah. With the straw. That's a good way that, of describing that, it. That, yeah. He used to say to me, "They are, son. That's a, that's a good buckfast queen. Look at the jumper." He says it's got a nice stripy jumper on. And, um, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's a really good way yeah, of explaining they, it. They, they were a be- They were beautiful bees. Beautiful bees. Um, yeah, and you could you couldn't really mistake them. They were so they were so distinctive in their markings and their colourings that you could you could easily tell them from other other strains of bee. You know, like an Italian or a whatever else. I can't think off the top of my head. Mm. But um, yeah, no, they were they were marvellous. And he used to have he had as many as eight beehives in our back garden here, and we're in the middle of town in an old townhouse and we've got a decent sized garden but it's not massively big and we've got neighbours very close and everybody was always amazed at the amount of beehives he had in the garden in a small area and they didn't even know they were there because they were so quiet Um, and we used to get amazing honey crops from them here because um, you've got quite a lot of fields and things in the distance around and you've got natural blossom like hawthorn and wild cherry and things like that. And then with all the domestic gardens as well. And um, with our own bees at home here, we used to get marvellous honey crops from those eight hives. It was amazing. Oh, that's amazing. And that, yeah. was, that, was the bit, that was the bit that I got roped in with the most, as I think I may have mentioned to you before, was when it was extracting time. And that's when I had to don my penny and things, you know, and set to and help. And um, you did all the spinning. A good, that's right. <laughs> and a good, a good many, a good many of my um, school holidays were spent out at Buckfast in the, in the original bee department, um, helping Brother Adam, my dad, and a, um, 
sometimes a couple of the monks or very often German visitors. And um, and we used to get massive honey crops in those days. It used to take you, oh, a week, 10 days sometimes to um, get through it all. And the extracting room, which um, was a massive room. I mean, it was it was like the size of a ballroom to me. And it was it was beautiful. It, the design of the building was beautiful. Um, it had a uh, tiled floor, a mosaic floor, like the sort of thing you see in American bathrooms in the 20s and 30s. And it was a honeycomb design with a Greek key board around the outside. So it could all be scrubbed and washed and cleaned and no mess. It was tiled to sort of shoulder height up, up the wall. So that again was all washable. And then there was a, a coloured paint above, which was a, a primrose yellow, of which Brother Adam was very proud. And the colour scheme and everything, it was all it was all bee orientated. It was all sort of shades of honey and brown and that kind of thing. And then the white honeycomb pattern floor. And all the equipment was painted to match the beehives. It was um, the off-white body with a salmon pink trim to everything, which my father used to painstakingly redo every little while. And um, no, it was an amazing room to be in. I'm so glad that I had the privilege of witnessing all that in those days. And um, it's strange because when you're when you're in it at the time, you sort of take it all for granted and you think it's all going to be always going to be there. And then, of course, now it's not. But um, no, I was very lucky to have seen all that. Mm. Um, well, it was there for a long, a very long time. And Brother Adam was keeping bees there for, for a really long time and about 80 years, I think. And um, oh, yes, yes. So, I mean, just after just after the Great War. Yeah, he took it over. But it was very basic when he took it over. Um, the building was there, but it wasn't as established as he made it. Mm. And then as he as once he took it over and he gradually expanded it and brought more money in, he was allowed to develop it. And sort of from the mid 20s through the 30s, by the time my dad came there as a 10 year old in 1939, it was more or less complete, as you would see it in, in the books, but it was all brand new. So all these tiles had all been fitted up and everything and it was a it was a real showpiece it was stunning and it was on um three floors you had the extracting room downstairs then there was a, a what was always referred to as the tank room upstairs which had massive big wooden clad storage tanks which again they were a, a feat of carpentry and engineering in themselves and many of the time i've been hoiked up on dad's shoulders and bunged in the top ones to wash them out and clean them ready for a new honey crop. Go on, you're small, son. You can get in there. And I'd be bunged over and a bucket of water passed up. And, um, yes. And and that's also where all the bottling was done. We would sit up there at a long table and there'd be like a, a sort of conveyor system run where one would fill the pots and pass it along and then another one would put the lid on and then another one would stick a label on and so on and so forth. And... Um, Yes, that, it used to it used to be quite fun doing that. I quite enjoyed that. Um, and then Brother Adam's office, which was immediately next door, which was um, officially known as the packing room, because that's where he parceled everything up um, to send away when people would order. In those days, people would order by post um, if they wanted something. So you'd, you'd get these 
letters come through the post and it would be lady so-and-so from somewhere would like a dozen pots of honey for Christmas and she would enclose a postal order and then brother Adam would um, oblige and send the post off and he had all the most beautiful boxes and things and um, yeah when I think back it, it, it was stunning how it was done it was worthy of like an old-fashioned department store like Harrods um, he had these different size boxes to hold certain numbers of pots the pots would all um, sort of nest into each other and be surrounded by wood wool and it, it always looked to me as a child like they'd been put to bed like they were in a little nest <laughs> and right. then the front of the box the front of the box would overlap and then he had this special manila brown paper that he favoured and he I mean he was a past master at wrapping parcels I have to admit I used to sit and watch him as a child um, and he part he do these parcels out and they were a sight to behold when they were done all beautiful envelope corners all very sharply creased and if he wasn't happy with it when he did it the first time he'd rip the wrapper off and throw it away because he was such a perfectionist and he'd do it again and then they'd be taken off to the post office you know and um yeah no it was fascinating it was um very very old-fashioned but um very practical the way it all worked you know mm. And, um, so did you did you ever uh, experience the um, the grafting of the the bee larvae or anything like that? Oh yes, I've sat and watched my father for hours doing that at times. Yes, because um, unfortunately, poor brother Adam. Um, by the time I knew him, because when we came here, he would have been well in his seventies when we moved here. And he'd, he'd started to have eyesight issues, which was a great, um, great grievance to him, really, because especially for that side of the work, because, well, basically, you need very good eyesight. And this was another reason why he valued dad so highly, because um, uh, touch wood, my father had an amazingly good eyesight. He'd been a marksman in the army. He used to get paid extra for um, his marksmanship for shooting. And that was only because he'd got such good eyesight. And um, so when dad came back, it was dad who did sort of grafting and artificial insemination and stuff like that. And poor brother Adam, he did, he did go through the gamut of having several um, quite intense eye operations done to try and solve the problems. But um, they worked to a degree, but not to the extent he would have liked. And he, he just, in the end, he had to admit that he couldn't see to do it anymore. So he handed it over to dad. Um, so yes, I've sat and watched my father do the grafting and the insemination on many occasions. Um, right. And there was, there was a real skill to that. And he was, he was very deft. And the amazing thing with my dad was, he had the hugest hands you've ever seen, Brent. Mm. I've never come across anybody with such big hands as my dad. They were massive, uh, almost like a baseball catcher's mitt. Wow. But he could do the most. He could do the most delicate stuff with them. Um, he could do the grafting and the insemination, and he could pick up a queen by its wings without crushing it. Wow! To clip its wing and things like that. And if you were to see it, with you know the tiny little queen, sort of waving her legs while he was holding her between this massive big thumb and forefinger, and um, yeah, for for such big hands, he had an amazingly delicate touch. Yeah. Oh wow. No. He, so it, it was it was quite something to watch. 
A few weeks ago, we were talking about how um, every time you introduce someone to your father, he would immediately try and turn them into a beekeeper, which I thought was really hilarious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if, if, he, if anybody showed the slightest interest and he thought, you know, he'd, he'd got their interest or attention, then that would be it. And this is what happened with my partner, Yost. Um, when we got together and he got to know Yost, and Yost was interested in what he was doing. And we had beehives in the back garden and everything. And then he said to Yost, come on, he said, do you want to have a look through a hive with me? So Yost said, yeah, sure, okay. So we found him a bee hat and some overalls. And he went out there and he smoked for my father. And this happened one Sunday afternoon. And then each Sunday afternoon after that, while I was getting the tea ready with mother, he'd be outside, you know, checking the colonies over with dad. And then lo and behold, by Sunday number four, dad was holding the smoker and Yost was going through the hive. <laughs> so, um, yeah. He, he, he took to it very well, actually, much better than I ever did. Um, although, to my credit, I did once when, when Dad got very poorly and he, he missed a couple of queen cells in a beehive, which annoyed him greatly. And he had a massive swarm come out and it went in a tree at the bottom of our garden. And he was just on the point of going into hospital the following day to have a, a major surgery on a very bad hernia. And I caught him out there putting a ladder up to go and get this swarm. And I said to him, you can't do that. Oh, I'm not going to lose me bees and all that. So I said, you can't do that, Dad. You're not well enough. So I came in and put a bee veil on and a bee hat. And I don't know where. It must have just been through observance over the years and knowledge. And I said, give me the bloody smoker. And I went up the thing. And I think I, I borrowed a washing up bowl from in the kitchen. And I actually caught the swarm and put it back in the beehive. <laughs> and I sort of did it all on autopilot. And when I came back in and I was sitting down having a cup of tea, and I thought to myself, good God, I don't believe I've just done that. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I was so afraid he was going to hurt himself and fall off this ladder. Um, I just sort of did it off my own back, you know. But, <laughs> That's um, fantastic. Yeah. Now... This is really interesting. He was, he was a very good teacher. He was a very good teacher. Yes. And speaking about that, John, you've just told me that you currently have an unpublished book written by your father, an instructional beekeeping mm -hmm. book. That's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. Well, he, he talked about doing a book for years. Various people throughout his life had said to him, oh, Peter, you should write a book, really. And I think what they were meaning was more about his like a memoir if you like about his experiences of working with brother adam and all that kind of thing but what my dad was more intent on doing was an instructional book because now what i'm going to say is going to sound slightly disloyal if not hypocritical but my father always felt that in some ways as good as brother adam's books are they were aimed at the higher end of the market with more knowledge, if that makes sense. They're, they're um, very, they are dense. That, yep. Yeah. Yep. To people that are more experienced beekeepers. And my dad always felt that it should have started more with a basic type of book and then worked its way up. Anyway, this was his goal to do this. And this is the manuscript that I've got tucked away. 
And basically, in layman's terms, how Dad described it to me when he was doing it, he said, I'm writing a beekeeping book. He said, because I favour my mother's side of the family. And um, she was a, my mother was a marvellous cook. So I was brought up learning to cook and bake and stuff. And my father's way of describing it to me was, he said, I'm doing a Mrs. Beaton's book for beekeepers. Um, the, the famous cookery writer who the book's still in print to this day and she wrote it back in 1850. And he said, I'm, I'm doing a beekeeping book that's like a Mrs. Beaton. It starts off with the really, really basic stuff and then it will go all the way through. And that's what he's done. And it's illustrated as well and it's got line drawings, it's got photographs, um, detailed exploded drawings of the various makes and models of beehive, um, like WBC, Dayton, all that kind of thing. And he did those roughly. And then interestingly, to go full circle to earlier in the conversation, he became reacquainted. I can't quite remember how it happened now, but he met an old army pal of his from his days in Malaya, who was a school teacher from Birmingham. And they got in contact with one another. And um, it turned out after he'd been in the army, this school teacher trained as a draftsman before he then became a school teacher. And he got talking to dad about the bees and stuff. And dad told him about the book he was doing. And he showed him these drawings that he'd done and he said, would you like me to refine them for you? He said, I can redraw them and do them. So his name was Bill James and um, he redrafted all these exploded drawings with all the measurements and everything of all the different beehives and the component parts. And that's what's all ready to go in the book. So um, that's fantastic. I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading that book, hopefully um, sooner rather than later. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, I'm determined to do my best to get it published because Yost and I have discussed it and we thought it would be a nice memorial to me, Dad, you know, to to have that done. And then, as I said, um, I've got all his archive of material upstairs, um, tons and tons of photographic slides, projection slides um, that he used to use for his lectures when he, he went around doing educational talks. Um, there must be over somewhere between five and 7,000 slides up there in boxes. Um, and I would like to sort of do an accompanying uh, book, a volume that's like a coffee table book with all these different photographs in because- um, Yeah, well, we'd, I think we'd love would... to see those. They're very interesting, I think. Yes, yeah, and I mean it's got it's got absolutely everything up there. All the interior of the old bee department, the twelve month cycle of work that they did. Um, because how how it worked briefly, I don't know whether you're aware of this, whether it's been mentioned on the Buckfast group at all. But um, Brother Adam was very clever how he worked it for the number of hives that he had. He had extra component parts for the hives, extra boxes and things, all stored in a, um, a big wooden building that doubled as a garage at the bee old bee department. And it gave them the opportunity, they could work a three-year cycle of each apiary that they could swap all the component parts over for clean, fresh painted ones. And then those other parts could come back to the abbey 
they were boiled in caustic soda any repairs were done to them and repainted over the winter months so that gave my father and whoever was working in the b department with him um enough work to keep them going during the winter when they couldn't keep bees and then come the spring they would swap the next apiary over and do the same and it went on in a repetitive cycle like that right and yeah. um, mm -hmm. and that's that's also how people have often said because pierre de Koning has said to me how come is it that some of these beehives are so old how did they survive so well um, because they dated from the 1920s you see and they were still in use in 2004 and it's only because they did that three-year cycle but then once my father left and the other party took over they didn't deem it necessary to do that three-year cycle and within five years the whole lot went it went downhill that it went downhill that quickly mm. yeah yeah that's and that's strange. why so you're saying some of these hives were some of these hives were almost 90 years old mm. wow. yeah they dated from around nine, 1920 22 i think that's were the oldest ones yeah yeah that's really interesting great yeah. well um i'm really looking forward to seeing um both of those books there john that'd be fantastic i think um really really interesting stuff you've got and um great stories really love those stories so thanks a lot for joining us today is there anything else you'd like to have a, a chat about before we wrap it up today um Oh gosh, well, there's lots of things, <laughs> lots of things I can think of. Really, we could go on twice the length, but um, yeah. Oh god. Um, any any particular memories um, with your father or brother Adam you'd like to discuss? Well, <laughs> um, they had a very interesting relationship in that they were like a double act. How they how they got on. To listen to their conversations was quite fascinating sometimes. And, um, oh, sorry, my, you're going to hear a noise. It's my clock striking. Just bear with it a minute. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Um, yeah, they, they had a fascinating dynamic, really. I don't know whether you'd call it father and son or, or what, really. But um, uh, they, were, they were great friends and they trusted each other with the work and everything, you know, and he knew that my dad would carry out his exact requirements and stuff um they did agree to disagree on certain points i mean i've seen them stand and have terrible what looked like heated rows but then they would always make it up at the end of the day and they would always adam would always have everybody upstairs and there'd be a glass of his famous mead up in the um packing room and that's when they used to plan what they were going to do in the future and all that kind of thing and all these discussions would go on but um no they had a, had a very interesting dynamic it was quite fascinating to watch it mm. and um uh yeah i mean brother adam he was he was a very forceful character but he was very fair and i will say this for him and he expected hard work and he was a taskmaster but he was one of these people he'd done every job associated with that bee department himself in his time and he would never expect anybody to do anything that he wouldn't have done himself if you know what i mean yes yep and um yeah but he was he was very fussy almost well i suppose in modern parlance he would have been considered ocd 
because everything had to be exactly in its place and God help someone if they didn't put it back in the right place and all that kind of thing. And he was very, extremely tidy and orderly, which a lot of Germans of his sort of era were. Um, and that rubbed off on my dad as well. Mm. And um, as I say, when dad came back there after all those years, everything was in exactly the same place. So he, he started work as if he'd never been away. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, they were the, they were quite a team to watch when they worked together. And they it was almost like they had a, a telekinesis of some sort. Um, if a problem arose or anything happened, um, one would come out with what the other one was thinking and that kind of stuff. They were that closely aligned. Um, yeah, yeah. No. That's very They're interesting. Both great characters in their own way. <laughs> no, and I, as I said, I, I deem it a great privilege that I was lucky enough to be around at that time. And I think, I think the years between 1972 and 2004 were some of the best um, as regards of the B department and and the way things went. And um, Yes, yeah, especially with sort of like the, the queen breeding and all that kind of thing. It was it was sort of the peak of its career. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, thanks a lot, yeah, John. Yeah. I really appreciate those stories. And uh, I am looking forward to, to one, one day seeing that book. I think it would be fantastic, or both of those books. And um, Well, thank you for asking me because um, I'm, I'm very flattered to think, you know, my dear old dad, having been gone quite a few years now because he passed away in... 2013 and I'm I'm blown away each time I go on the group to see the amount of following that Buckfast has got and brother Adam has got and my father has got and it's um yeah it's very touching to know he was he made such an impact and has still got such a following mm. um and as we said earlier he loved teaching people and he was a great believer in imparting knowledge in that way he did differ slightly from brother Adam because um Brother Adam had a slightly impatient nature, <laughs> if I can put it politely, and he didn't suffer fools gladly. And if anybody came there to learn beekeeping, I remember this with some of the German beekeepers, and they would ask him questions and things, and he was trying to concentrate on what he was doing, and he would get a little bit annoyed, and he would turn around and say to them, oh, don't keep asking me questions, just watch what I'm doing, and that sort of thing. <laughs> yep, yep. And of course, that... that, that that made it rather difficult for them. But my father was the complete opposite. My father would stand and talk to them and talk them through the thing and explain it in the greatest of detail. Probably, probably bless him. Sorry, Dad, if you're listening. Too long-winded sometimes. But, um, <laughs> he, um, yeah, he always went out of his way um, to impart as much knowledge as he could. And one of the local guys that I keep in touch with now, a chap called Duncan Simmons, who's a marvellous queen breeder i mean the way he he produces buckfast queens I, I said to him in the summer i haven't seen bees like that since my father's heyday and um he's always saying to me how grateful he is that he met dad when he did and what dad taught him and the knowledge he imparted because he said nobody else could teach like your father and um yeah no i do believe that um so yes yeah they were they were both both very talented men in their own ways um yeah well that's fantastic um yeah fantastic stories and uh 
I'm really, really, uh, I've learned a lot today. So thanks a lot, John. That's, that's great. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Well, thanks for being with us today and uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon. Okay. Cheerio then, Brent. Thank you. See ya. Okay, well, how good was that, having a chat to John? He is a very nice guy, and uh, actually, he continued to tell me some really great stories after I finished recording. He told me a story about how Brother Adam would go on these international trips, and he'd send home these bags of queens and uh, some of the issues that happened uh, in association with that. Unfortunately, I'd already stopped recording, so I didn't get it on the podcast, but maybe next time. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that episode today. If you want to get in touch with me, you can at nixonbees.com.au. And until next time, thanks so much for tuning in.